Well, it's never my intention to hit you hard. Uh, so uh, I just say what it says here. So, and nor today am I hoping to let you have it. Uh, it's, it is what it is, as Dan so often reminds us. Our passage this morning is Mark 8, 31 through the first verse of chapter 9. It's an odd break, but most of your uh, versions might have it arranged just so. The ESV does. And uh, that, well, that's what I set out to be our passage today. Um, unfortunately, we'll only make it through half of it. So just, you know, just breathe a sigh of relief. We'll just go through verse 33 this morning and come back for the remainder next Lord's Day morning. But uh, so you can see the context, let me read this whole section to you and um, see, its, see it in its setting. Hear the word of the Lord. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does, our prof what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word of God. Uh, may he bless what we've read and let's uh, pause and ask for his help as we study this portion. Jesus, please give us your grace today. Uh, we need um, your spirit to open our eyes and unclog our ears. Uh, we need soft and uh, tender hearts to receive your truth, uh, Lord, that it may do the work of uh, chipping off and chiseling us until we are conformed to the image of Jesus, your Son. Father, do this in us, each one of us today. Let your work, um, let your word have its full effect in our hearts. Strengthen me, Lord, to preach today. Please uh, strengthen my voice and my mind. Lord, we cast ourselves on your mercy and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we return to a new section in the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, the last time we were uh, together, or, or actually the last time we were in the book of Mark, which was three weeks ago, we started this new section uh, that begins at Mark 8.22. It'd be very helpful if you have your Bible open, if it's not already, so you can so you can see this. There's one underneath the chair in front of you somewhere. 
And I uh, just want to encourage you that. Anyway, this new part that we're in begins at chapter 8, verse 22. Um, Jesus uh, is in the city of Bethsaida, and he heals a blind man. But oddly enough, he does it in two stages. First, the, the man goes from blind to blurry vision. And then in the second stage, he goes from blurry to bright, bright, clear vision. And this is followed immediately by Peter's important confession of Christ in the area around Caesarea Philippi. In fact, uh, 8.29 uh, says, uh, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. You are God's anointed king. But oh, how much they still needed to learn. Uh, like the blind man, they could see, but their vision was blurry. The disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they did not know what kind of Messiah he would be. They didn't understand what him being the Messiah would look like. And this becomes clear in the verses we'll look at this morning, crystal clear. Uh, they can see, but they, their vision is still very blurry. And so here in this middle portion, it starts in 8.22, goes all the way through chapter 10, uh, we'll see Jesus focusing on his 12 disciples, refining and clarifying their vision of him. And at the same time, Jesus and his men are slowly making their way toward Jerusalem, where Jesus will be crucified. They are on the way, uh, as we said three weeks ago. And that phrase, on the way, uh, pops up seven times in this middle section, and, and that's quite a bit for uh, two and a half chapters. Uh, on the way, uh, and they are also on the way to clearer vision of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And you and I, as followers of Christ are also on the way to clearer vision, at least I hope you are, uh, to a clearer understanding of who he is. And like the blind man and like his 12 disciples, you and I need our vision or our understanding of Jesus the Messiah to go from blurry to bright to clear. What do we need for our vision to go from blurry to bright? What's needed for you and me to gain a clearer understanding of Jesus the Messiah? The first thing that's required is to understand his mission. Uh, to gain a clearer vision, you and I need to understand the mission of the Messiah. And we'll learn what his mission is by understanding four features in verses 31 through 33. There are four features in this section I've entitled on your bulletin, His Misunderstood Mission. And the first feature we find in this, uh, this portion is a new development in Mark's account of Christ. All right, Spencer, it's not working. There you go, His Misunderstood Mission, a new development uh, in Mark's account. Jesus is, we're going to see Jesus introduce a new theme in his teaching. Look at verse 31 again. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Each time Mark uses this phrase at the, as he does at the beginning of verse 31, and he began to teach them, it's a clue that there's a development in his account, that he is developing the storyline uh, that he is giving us, the, the account of Christ. And this new theme is uh, the announcement of his imminent death. Here in verse 31, for the first time in Mark, Jesus announces that he will suffer, be rejected, be killed by these three groups that I've just read. Uh, these three groups make up the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court. And lastly, he says he's going to rise after three days. This is not news to you and me. Uh, we're well aware of this. We have the complete account before us and know that this is what Jesus came to do. He came to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. But, but his disciples don't know this yet. Listen to Dr. R.C. Sproul describe it. The disciples finally grasped that Jesus was the long-awaited and promised Messiah. However, their understanding was still deficient in at least one key way. They understood that he was the Messiah, but they had a very inaccurate understanding of what the word Messiah meant and what Jesus' messianic vocation would entail. And so this is why Jesus introduces this theme to his men. This is a new and a foreign concept to his disciples. While we have known it since childhood, perhaps, they would struggle to understand what Jesus is saying. They, they get it well enough, but we find Jesus repeating it three times in this middle portion. So this is the first thing we see in, in uh, our, our passage, a new development in Mark's account. As Jesus introduces a new theme, the theme of his suffering, death, and resurrection. Brings us to a second uh, thing in his misunderstood mission. The second thing we encounter is a divine necessity. Jesus' suffering and death had to take place. Glance back to the beginning of verse 31 once more, and notice what it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Another version says he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. So these events had to take place. These four things that Jesus mentions in verse 31, they, they were required. They had to happen. And the reason they were necessary because, is because they were all part of God's eternal purpose established in eternity past. And, and I'm talking about before he created the heavens and the earth. Listen to Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost describe this. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Before God created the heavens and the earth, uh, he had this plan, this definite plan, uh, Peter says, in place uh, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
And in this plan, God had set his love on some and, and shows them for salvation. Paul describes this in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The Father chose some for salvation uh, before the foundation of the world, as Peter says, and gave this group of people, the Bible calls them the elect, he gave this group to Jesus for him to redeem as he died on the cross. Uh, John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. These things had to take place because they were set in motion a long time ago, before time began. If you can imagine before time, there was eternity stretching, well, stretching that way if you look on a timeline, but there was no timeline because there was no time. It just went on. And somewhere back then, the Father set his love on those he chose to save and gave them to Jesus the Son for him to redeem on the cross. When time finally started and throughout history, the Holy Spirit applied the death of Christ to each of God's chosen people. Uh, those in the Old Testament after Christ died on the cross and those in the New Testament, of course, after Christ died on the cross. The Spirit of God applied uh, the death of Christ to each of God's chosen people by opening their ears to hear the Word of God and giving them new hearts to believe and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The Spirit applied the death of Christ to each of us, each of us in time. Listen to 1 Peter uh, describe this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in or by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, or in other words, to produce obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is God's plan of redemption. And each of these four events was necessary in, uh, these four events Jesus names in verse 31 was necessary to fulfill God's eternal purpose and redeem sinners. They were a divine necessity. They must take place. This is the second thing that we see here in this um, portion today. There's a third thing we see. And the third thing we notice is an objection from the twelve. Jesus' disciples understand enough and object to this new theme that Jesus introduces. And we see their objection in verse 32. It begins, and he said, uh, he said this plainly. Now, if you've been with us in Mark you know that Jesus almost always speaks in parables. Not this time. He says it plainly. 
and plainly enough so that they don't have to ask him. Uh, he speaks directly and conceals nothing. Again, they wouldn't fully grasp what all this meant until after he rose from the dead, but they understand enough to object to the idea of suffering and being killed. And Peter steps up. He's acting as the spokesman for the twelve, as he has before, and he voices not just his objection, but their objection to what Jesus uh, has just said, as verse 32 goes on. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I don't know how you respond to that. It took a lot of nerve. And that's putting it mildly. You get the idea that, that Peter pulled him aside quietly, but I assure you this was not a quiet conversation. Because Mark uses the word rebuke. Uh, it's a strong term. Uh, Mark is speaking to Christ in a firm tone of voice. Uh, this is the same term uh, that Mark uses to describe how Jesus addressed the demons in chapter 1. Jesus rebuked them. Uh, uh, he rebuked uh, them and said, come out of the man. And so Peter takes a firm tone with Jesus and Mark, uh, Mark's account supplies the actual words that Peter used. And, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Where did he get the nerve to say this? How could he possibly utter something to the one he just confessed. You are the Christ. It's, it's mind-boggling. Why did he address his Lord and Master with these words? The answer is because this new theme of suffering and death, it ran contrary to everything they had been taught about the Messiah. The Messiah wasn't going to suffer and die. He, he was going to conquer and be victorious. He was, he was coming to be a champion and destined for honor and glory. See, in the centuries before Jesus came, the Jewish rabbis had completely missed the point of Isaiah 53. Uh, if you recall, that's about the suffering servant of the Lord. They missed the point of Psalm 22 that we studied this past... Uh, did we study Psalm 22 this Easter? Some Easter in the past, we looked at Psalm 22. These passages that talk about the servant of the Lord suffering and dying for his people, they thought those passages applied to Israel as a nation. And, and so Peter objects to this new theme of suffering and death because it's contrary to everything that he's been taught. And then, furthermore, there's his own personal experience. Um, uh, anyone who can silence the sea and cast out demons with a word and heal the sick with a touch, there, this kind of man could only be headed for glory, not suffering. And so this idea of a suffering Messiah was impossible. It was unthinkable. 
And speaking for the twelve, he, he pulls Jesus aside to inform him what the Messiah's role would be before Jesus can say anything else that's more embarrassing than what he's already said. I think it sounds similar to some of the preaching that takes place across the world. That God's plan for you is health and wealth and well-being. Some call it the prosperity gospel. And even if we don't go to, to that extreme, this might sound familiar to some of the things you and I say. This isn't supposed to happen to me. I'm a follower of Jesus. For Pete's sake, I'm a faithful follower of Jesus. This suffering is not part of it. How could he allow this? And sometimes you and I start to sound a lot like Job later on in the book of Job, where Job kind of cries out, Lord, you can do whatever you want, and I can't speak a word against you, so it's just not fair. What kind of reply, what kind of response does this objection evoke from Jesus? Oh my goodness, Peter, you're absolutely right. What was I thinking? <laughs> Thanks for that word, bro. I'll be more careful in the future. Or is it something different? We find out in verse 33 where we come across the fourth feature in this section, and that is a reprimand from Jesus. I'm going to put it on another slide so I can... Uh, give you uh, some points under this. Um, verse 33 says, but turning and seeing his disciples, this, this alone is an indication that Peter, Peter's not alone in this objection, but again, being a spokesman for all of them. This is, this is what they all think. And Jesus turns to address all of them. And, and it goes on to say, he rebuked Peter using the same term that Mark just used for Peter, Mark tells us that Jesus also took a serious tone, rebuking him. And those two terms coming together like that, Mark is demonstrating that there is a serious clash taking place between the disciples and their teacher. The disciples' plan for the Messiah is clearly at odds with God's plan for the Messiah. And Mark gives us the content of Jesus' reprimand, what he actually said as verse 33 continues. Look at what it says. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There are actually three ideas in this phrase, that this reprimand that I want to point out to you. And the first is, get behind me. Peter's not following Jesus at this point. Get behind me carries the idea of, Peter, you go get back in line. I'm the teacher, you're the follower. Stop trying to lead me and go back to following. Get behind me, Peter. Listen to this one comment. Jesus did not choose Peter to be the drum major. 
And Peter cannot follow if he's out in front. He needs to get back in line behind his master and follow after him, which is what Jesus called him to do in the first place. The first idea in this reprimand is, Peter, you go get back behind me. You return to following. I wonder if our difficulties stem from this sometimes. Where we want to be the drum major, you know, that's the guy with the big stick marching in front of the marching band and everybody follows him. We're not the drum major. We're in the band. You go back to following. And then the second idea here, get behind me, Satan. And this idea is that by opposing God's plan for his Messiah, Peter had become a spokesman for the devil without knowing it. It's not that Peter is being possessed at this point or anything like that, but without knowing it, he's he's actually saying something very similar to what the devil said. His thoughts were, Lord, the Messiah is not supposed to suffer and die because he's a triumphant hero. Stop this nonsense about being killed. You don't have to die. Very similar to what the devil said to Peter, when, uh, devil said to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. Matthew gives us uh, that account. Uh, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of, this, of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, you don't need to be crucified. Just bow the knee and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And so Peter unknowingly, by uttering this, becomes a spokesman for Satan. And then the third idea Jesus communicates in this reprimand is that Peter and the twelve have their hearts set on their own plans and not God's. Jesus says this in the last part, for you are not, last part of verse 33, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Setting your mind on means to be intent on something, to set your mind to something, to be focused on something. And what did they have their minds set on? What were they intent on doing? Or what were they intent on happening? Well, Jesus says they're focused on their own human desires and longings. And one scholar comments like this, lofty visions of majesty fill up their eyes and the noise of cheering crowds plugs up their hearing so that Jesus' teaching about suffering and death flies in one ear and out the other. It's a muddle to them. And the proof that that's actually what they're thinking is found uh, just a little later in chapter 10. Mark 10.35 says what their minds are set on. You'll recall this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Lord, when you consummate your glorious kingdom, we want the seats of honor on your right and left. 
both sons of Zebedee reigning with you in places of honor and authority. How about that? And we chuckle and say, well, is that all? Is that all? And to us, this comes across as ridiculous. I mean, you, you talk about nerve. Let me sit at your right hand. Where did they, they ever get the idea uh, that it was the Messiah's job to fulfill their dreams and their wishes? And if we pause long enough, perhaps it's not so ridiculous after all. Because sometimes you and I have pretty wild dreams, even fantasies, and we tend to do the same thing as James and John. We have an idea of how something should turn out. I mean, we've thought about, thought of it and planned it and we have this dream of something and, and maybe we could go so far as to say a fantasy of how things should go. It's like we're all back in fifth grade again, daydreaming out the window about how something should turn out, how our children should turn out and how our careers should go. And we come up with things just as wild as James and John. And Jesus tells them that their minds are intent on their human fantasies and not the things of God. Their minds should be intent on the, the things of God, like advancing his kingdom and describing how jaw-dropping he is, God is, and declaring his glory among the nations and making him famous instead of ourselves. How you and I could desire ourselves to be famous after reading the descriptions of God that we see, many of them in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, for example. We see the glory of Christ described by the prophet Isaiah. The foundations of heaven shaking in his presence. His majesty filling the temple. The angels covering their, their eyes and feet and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And we see descriptions like that. How can you and I ever think that he should make us famous? And that it's his duty to fulfill our wishes instead of us fulfilling his. If you want to be intent on something, this is the, what the word of God says you should set your mind to. Uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians, uh, Colossians. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And also this in Matthew 6, familiar words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, these daily necessities will be added to you. 
So, in this reprimand, uh, Jesus reprimands his men, all of them, through Peter. Get behind me. Get back in line. Satan. You desire the things Satan desires. And you have your mind set on your human wishes. This is his reprimand. They're not seeking the things of God, but the things of man. So what do you and I need for our vision of Christ to go from blurry to bright? To go from fuzzy to clear? What's needed for you and me on the way is for us to gain a clearer understanding of Jesus the Messiah. And the thing that's required is to understand his mission. To understand the mission of the Messiah. And we've heard Jesus describe his mission through four features in our passage today. Uh, He mentions this new development, that it is his mission to suffer, die, and rise again that this is a divine necessity, the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption that was set in motion in eternity past, these things must happen. We hear the twelve object through Peter. And we hear a reprimand from Jesus. Get back in line and follow. So what do you need to do with this this morning, friend? Some of you hope to be and would say that you are on the way with Jesus. And yet, sometimes we, like Peter, we get out in front. Would Jesus tell you, hey, get back in line. Quit trying to lead me. My plan is different than your plan. Haven't we found that out by now? Oh my goodness. Mm -mm -mm. This is not what I intend. You get back in line. Is that what you might need to do with this passage? Is take your disappointment to the Lord and say to him this morning, I've been trying to lead the way. You're not fulfilling my expectations, so I'm just going to walk back to where I should be and I'll follow you whatever it takes, wherever you go. Maybe the way you should apply this today is to to begin with, surrender your life to Christ. You've never done that. You've never bowed the knee to Jesus to acknowledge your sin and that great separation between you and Christ and recognize that he paid for that sin on the cross, but you must trust him as your Savior, as the one who paid for your sin, not just the sins of the world. I had a debt, and I owed. And Christ, I'm trusting you as the payment for my sin. It must be personal. It must be individual. And so perhaps you need to Become a disciple this morning. And perhaps there's a third application 
of which I don't know what it is. But the Spirit of God is prompting you perhaps to do something else with this passage. We get a clearer vision of Jesus by recognizing the mission of the Messiah. Let's pray. Savior, we confess that we're all a little like Peter in the twelve. And how often we step out in front and try to lead you. But you will not be led by us. And forgive us for ever thinking that we could put ourselves in charge and exalt ourselves to places of honor at your right hand and your left. You are not about fulfilling your dreams. We are about furthering your kingdom and advancing your glory. Christ, keep us in step with you through your indwelling spirit. I pray that you would quicken us in our uh, journey on the way. And like your men, Christ Jesus, give us clearer sight of who you are. We ask in your precious name, Lord. Amen.